Well, if you have your Bibles, please turn to the book of Galatians. Galatians chapter 4, beginning at verse 8. Galatians chapter 4, beginning at verse 8. I'm going to pray before I read God's word. And if you're able to stand with me for the reading of God's word, would you stand too? Let's pray, and then I'll read God's word together. Father, I thank you for this group of people that you gathered on this particular day, Lord, to worship your name, Lord, to hear from you, to be encouraged. Lord, I also know that on any particular Sunday, there are many who are probably struggling and discouraged. So I pray that by being here today, Lord, may you encourage them. May you lift up their spirits, lift their eyes to Jesus Christ. Lord, may they leave feeling lighter. And Lord, I pray too for the struggles that people have. If there are some serious issues going on, and I'm sure there are, Lord, would you come alongside them and bear their burdens? Lord, I even pray that through this, Lord, that that they would be able to point to your glory. (coughs) Father, I pray too just for our entire church family that you would help us connect more and more with you and with one another. I pray that you would put on our hearts people within our congregation and community, Lord, that we can regularly touch base with and reach out to. Lord, I pray that your spirit would continually fill our church, that, Lord, you would move in a mighty way so much so that we are encouraged and convicted and challenged and sent out on a mission. Lord, empower each and every one of our people to live on a mission for you, whether you've placed them in a factory or a restaurant or the home. Lord, wherever they may find themselves, may they look at life through the lens of Jesus Christ and the ministry you've given them to do. Father, we commit these things to you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, I'm going to start reading at verse 8. If you're able to stand, stay standing. We're going to start reading at verse 8 and go through verse 20. I just keep you guessing here, all right? So here we go. Verse 8, Paul says this. Formerly, when you did not know God, you were slaves to those who by nature are not gods. But now that you know God, or rather are known by God, how is it that you are turning back to those weak and miserable forces? Do you wish to be enslaved by them all over again? You are observing special days and months and seasons and years, and I fear for you that somehow I have wasted my efforts on you. I plead with you, brothers and sisters, become like me, for I became like you. You did me no wrong. As you know, it was because of an illness that I first preached the gospel to you, and even though my illness was a trial to you, you did not treat me with contempt or scorn. Instead, you welcomed me as if I were an angel of God, as if I were Christ Jesus himself. Where then is your blessing of me now? I can testify that if you could have done so, you would have torn out your eyes and given them to me. Have I now become your enemy by telling you the truth? Those people are zealous to win you over, but for no good. What they want is to alienate you from us so that you may have zeal for them. And it is fine to be zealous, provided the purpose is good, and to be so always, not just when I am with you. My dear children, for whom I am again in the pains of childbirth until Christ is formed in you, how I wish I could be with you now and change my tone because I am perplexed about you. And this is God's word today. You may be seated. Well, one of the most empowering ideas from Scripture is that you and I... If you have a pulse and you are a believer in Jesus Christ, you are called to the work of the ministry. You are called to go out and make disciples. You're called to love your neighbor as yourself. 
You're called to glorify God wherever he's placed you. And certainly you can do that here at church, but, but you do that at home, in the factory, at work, with your, with your family, with your friends, with your neighbors, where you work and play and shop, wherever God has placed you, you're a minister. Look at your neighbor for a second and say, I am a minister of the gospel. <laughs> okay, look at your neighbor again and say it with a little more passion. <laughs> I am a minister of the gospel. <laughs> and I think this is empowering because how many of you know that if you're a believer, you have the Holy Spirit living inside you? Amen. Amen. The presence of God himself. How many of you know that God's given you a mission? Wherever you're at. It may not always feel like that. I get that. Monday morning, the alarm goes off. This doesn't feel very glorifying. <laughs> but God has called you on a mission. And so we're going to look at today some characteristics of gospel-centered ministry. I think you and I can learn a lot from Paul here and his passion for the Galatians who have wandered from the gospel and added to the gospel and thus lost the gospel. So let's look at four characteristics Four characteristics that we can apply from Paul's life about gospel-centered ministry. And what is the first one on screen? You can say it. Loving confrontation. Loving confrontation. Or you could say truth and love. Truthful love, loving truth. Gospel-centered ministry is characterized by being willing to confront people in love. And that's exactly what Paul does in this passage. In fact, if you look at verse 16, he talks about the truth. He says, have I now become your enemy by telling you the what? The truth. Paul's like, I'm not your enemy for telling you the truth. I'm actually your, your friend. I'm like a mom who's trying to give birth to you. I know that's a weird image, but that's what he's saying. <laughs> by the way, I resonate with this verse for our day and age. I mean, it seems like in a day and age, if you just disagree with someone, that you must hate them. <laughs> but that's not true. Paul says, it's because I love you. You're my dear children. You're my brothers and sisters in Christ. I am telling you this truth, not to add to the gospel. In fact, you see that love come out in verse 19. He says, my dear children, for whom I am again in the pains of childbirth until Christ is formed in you. Which, by the way, as a man, that's pretty brave to use that image. <laughs> but he's saying, I, I started this church. I led you to Christ. I want to see you grow and mature in Christ. I am in deep labor pains, spiritually speaking, for you. I have love for you. So he has truthful love or loving truth. How many of us can say the same in our ministry with the people that God has put us in contact with? Are we willing to confront them in love if necessary? Look at the truth that Paul confronts them in. In verses 8 to 11, he gives some pretty strong truth here. He says, formerly, when you did not know God, so before you were a believer, you were slaves to those who by nature are not gods. You were slaves to idols. You were pagans, worshiping pagan gods. And it was a form of slavery. But in verse nine, but now that you know God, or rather are known by God, how is it that you are turning back to those weak and miserable forces? Do you wish to be enslaved by them all over again? So that word that I have highlighted there, words, is weak and miserable forces. That word forces is used earlier in verse 3 from last week's sermon. When he talks about a similar concept, he says, So also when we were underage, we were in slavery under the what? Let's read it together. Elemental spiritual forces of the world. So that's three words there, but technically it's only one word in the original Greek. But that same Greek word is used both in verse 3 
and in verse 9. So what are these elemental spiritual forces that Paul's talking about? What are these weak and miserable forces in verse 9 that he's talking about? I promised you last week I would give an answer. So let me try to give you an answer. Here's how one scholar says it, and I agree with this. He says, in ancient Greece, it referred to the elements of the material world that make up nature, elements like fire and earth and water and air. And in ancient Greece, they believed that such elements were controlled by spiritual forces or pagan gods. And these pagan gods controlled the elements and controlled people's lives and destinies. So if you're a farmer back in ancient Greece and you wanted to have a good crop, do you know what you would do? You would sacrifice to a pagan god in hopes of having a good crop. Or if you wanted somebody to fall in love with you back in that day and age, you know what you would do? You wouldn't send them a friend request on Facebook. No, that's not what you would do. You would, or text them, but you would sacrifice to a pagan god because you thought they controlled all these things, all these elements. And so Paul is saying that you Galatians, under the law and in paganism, you are under the elemental spiritual forces of the world if you're not under Christ. In other words, you are under idols, substitutes for God. And what's interesting in the Bible is that Paul and the Bible has this tension that on the one hand, idols are nothing. And yet on the other hand, idols are a really big deal. So if you look on screen in 1 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 4, when Paul is talking to them about eating meat that was formerly sacrificed to pagan gods, I know it's not something we struggle with, but he says, so then about eating food sacrificed to idols, we know that an idol is nothing at all in the world and that there is no God but one. So in that context, he's like, Eat the meat. If you're at the butcher shop and you eat meat that was formerly sacrificed to a pagan god, doesn't matter. Eat the meat because an idol is nothing. But then later on in chapter 10, verse 20, he talks about the, no, but the sacrifices of pagans. So what pagans would offer to a pagan god in that day and age are offered to whom? Demons, not to God. And I do not want you to be participants with Demons. So on the one hand, an idol is nothing. It has no power. There's only one God. But if you have an idol in your life, you are under an elemental spiritual force, Paul says. Technically, you're being influenced by demons, is what Paul is saying. Let's apply this back to verse 8 and 9, because this, this is where it gets really, really crazy. Let me read this again and see if you can catch what Paul is saying even closer. He says, formerly, when you did not know God... You were slaves to those who by nature are not gods. So back in your pagan ways, serving your pagan gods, you were in slavery. But now that you know God, or rather are known by God, you've experienced incredible freedom. But now false teachers are coming in and telling you not to go back to those pagan gods, but to embrace really legalism. Say that with me. Legalism. They want you to add to the gospel Yes, you're saved by Jesus, but you also must do this and be circumcised and follow the Old Testament law to really be saved, to really be a Christian. If you embrace that way of legalism, Paul says, you're actually just as bad off as you were when you were in paganism. Are you with me? He says, by going forward in this, you're actually turning back to those weak and miserable forces. You're going back to a form of slavery. So legalism is a type of slavery on par with paganism. Both legalism, adding to the gospel by works, and paganism, serving other gods, both 
are forms of bondage. Both are forms of idolatry. I mean, if you're a pagan, or we might say today a person who is not a religious person, not a believer, you look to all sorts of things to save you. Your money, your career, your sexuality, your relationships, your romance, your popularity, whatever. That's a form of slavery. But if you're a very religious person, it's tempting to add to the gospel and try to add works and say, well, if I do this, then I'm really a believer rather than trusting in the finished work of Christ. And Paul says, if you do that, you're coming under those weak and miserable forces. You're in bondage. In fact, in a sense, you're under spiritual bondage to demons. Do you wish to be enslaved by them all over again? So are you with me? Do you see how dangerous adding to the gospel is? See how dangerous legalism is? Here's how one scholar says, says it better than I could. He says this, we must feel the force of Paul's emphasis on enslavement. If anything but Jesus is a requirement for being happy or worthy, that thing will become our slave master. Without the gospel, we must be under the slavery of an idol. And then he says this, pay very close attention to this. Slap yourself a couple times if you have to. Or slap your neighbor if they let you. <laughs> And then he says this, if anything, the idolatry and slavery of a religious person or a legalistic person is way more dangerous than the idolatry and slavery of an irreligious or pagan or secular person because it is less obvious. The irreligious person knows he is far from God, but the religious person does not. So Paul says, if you add to the gospel, it's like you're returning to your pagan days without Christ. It's like you're coming under these elemental spiritual forces, these, these pagan gods, and really there's demons behind those things. Is that where you want to go? I love how honest Paul is with people here. Remember we said that characteristic number one is loving truth. How many of you struggle to confront people in your life? How many of you avoid confrontation at all cost? Yeah. And most of the time we do this because we don't want to upset things, but I think most of the reason we do this is because deep in our hearts, we don't want them to think poorly of us. I'm not afraid of just making them mad, but I don't want them to be mad at me. The gospel frees us from that. If we are really gospel-centered, our number one concern is not what they think, but what God thinks, that we are known by God. And even though it's hard to confront someone still, we will confront someone if necessary for their sake and we'll do it in love because it's good for them and they need it. On the other hand, there's some people here who are really good at confrontation. You're not afraid to pummel people with truth. You need that loving side. You need to be like Paul in the pains of childbirth, loving them. Where are you at this morning? I mean, if that's you, if you need that loving side, you've got to remember the gospel too, that, that without Christ, you are just as bad as they are. You can't look down on somebody when you confront them. You've got to look across or come alongside. The gospel frees us from caring ultimately what people think, and it frees us to actually love them too and not look down on them. So the first characteristic is loving confrontation. The second characteristic of gospel-centered ministry, say it with me, is flexibility. And so you remember this point. Why don't you just raise your hands and flex a little bit? Move a little bit. This is a good image for what God is calling us to do, what Paul models. Because if you look at verse 12, look at what he says. 
I plead with you, brothers and sisters, become like me. Why? For I became like you. You did me no wrong. So Paul is saying, when I reached out to you with the gospel in Galatia, I came to you, I lived among you, I worked among you, I got to know you, I did life with you. I became like the Galatians in a sense. It doesn't mean he sacrificed the gospel or his core convictions, but he flexed, he adapted. And that's what gospel-centered ministry does, that you and I will have a willingness to flex for our neighbors and coworkers and friends and family and whomever God places in your life for the sake of the gospel. In fact, here's how Paul says it. This is his philosophy of flexing, you could say, in 1 Corinthians 9, verse 19. He says this, though I am free and belong to no one, I have made myself a what? A slave to everyone to win as many as possible. By the way, is that your personal mission too? Are you willing to make yourself a slave to everyone? Probably not. Because we're like, no, I have my rights. I can flex my rights. And Paul's like, no, I've made myself a slave to everyone to win as many people to Christ as possible. To the Jews, I became like a Jew to win the Jews. And we see Paul doing this in the book of Acts. To those under the law, the Jews, I became like one under that Old Testament Mosaic law, though I myself as a Christian am not under the law now. So as to win those under the law, to those not having the law, so the Gentiles and the Galatians, I became like one not having the law, though I am not free from God's law, but am under Christ's law. So as to win those not having the law. To the weak, I became weak to win the weak. Let's read this part together. I have become all things to all people so that by all possible means I might save some. How many of you can say that's your mission too? You know, if I think we're honest, and I'm this way too, I'm guilty of this as well. When we reach out to people, when we try to disciple people, we want them to flex for us. We want them to adapt to us. But that's not what Paul's saying here. We adapt to them. We flex for them. We become like them. We get to know them. We enter their world. We have meals with them. We understand their fears and their hopes and dreams and joys. What makes them tick? A person who is gospel-centered will do so. In fact, if you think about Paul, I'm also reminded of somebody else who flexed quite a bit for us. And who's that being? Jesus. He flexed and adapted more than anyone without compromising his convictions either. He did it for our sake so that we could know him. Are you willing to flex and adapt for the sake of the gospel? And if not, chances are you may not be gospel-centered, but legalistic-centered. If you are focused, focused on people, not focused, focused on people, <laughs> getting ready for lunch, our fork, but focused on people, <laughs> Adapting to you in your rigid rules and ways, that's not gospel-centered ministry. Let's go to the third one. We've got two more. Number three, characteristic number three, and this is probably the hardest one, is a willingness to embrace hardship and trials for ministry. A willingness to embrace hardship and trials for ministry. And so if you see what Paul said in verse 13, he says this, as you know, it was because of an illness that I first preached the gospel to you. And when I first read that, I was like, I know that when I'm sick, my first instinct is not to preach the gospel to somebody, <laughs> but it's to get better. <laughs> we don't know what Paul's illness was. We think it may have been malaria or something like that. And so he had to go to Galatia, which was higher up in the hills, away from the mosquitoes, perhaps. 
And because he was sick and in the area, he just so happened to preach the gospel and he just so happened to start several churches. He just so happened to spread the glory of God and the kingdom of God. I don't know about you, but I'm challenged by this. In fact, this is one of the hardest teachings to accept as believers that Romans 8.28 says, we know that in some things, no, but in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. Those all things include good things and not so good things, even suffering. And the reason we know this works is because of Jesus, that God worked in one of the worst things ever where mankind killed the son of God. What man intended for evil, God intended for good and brought about the redemption of all if we believe in him by faith. If God can do that, then certainly he can work through our situation for our good and his glory. And so the question for you and I this morning, if you are facing a hard time in life and suffering, and I don't wish that upon anyone, I get that, but are you willing to allow it, like Paul did, to be used for the sake of the gospel? Could it be that in God's plan and wisdom, he wants to use your trials and suffering to testify to him? You know, I don't like suffering either. <laughs> in fact, I was reading one cultural scholar, and he said, this is a pretty strong statement, that more than ever in the history of the world, our culture in America is the least equipped ever to handle suffering. <laughs> strong statement. Because we view suffering as an interruption. Oh, I can't wait till life goes back to normal. Let's get over this pain and this discomfort. I don't like it. I don't either. But could it be instead of being an interruption that God wants to use it as part of the main act of your story in life to testify to him? You know, when I see a believer who is suffering well for the gospel, I take notice. I'm like, I wanna be like that person. Their faith is real. They are dependent on God through their suffering. They are glorifying God through suffering. And even though it's horrible what they're going through, it is beautiful how they're testifying to God. And that's what gospel-centered ministry does. It uses our sufferings and illnesses and hardships if we let God for the sake of his kingdom. You know, I can't tell you how many times I hear people say, well, I can't wait till life slows down and life gets easier and less stressful and then... I will be used by God for the kingdom of God. But guess what? It doesn't get easier or less stressful. <laughs> God wants to work in and through our stress. He worked through Paul's illness. He worked through the cross. He wants to work through you as a testimony to him. Could it be that what you're going through is that opportunity right now that God wants to use for his glory? Let's go to the fourth characteristic. The fourth and final one is zeal with purpose or passion with purpose. This is another characteristic of gospel-centered ministry. And if you look at verses 17 and 18, he says, those people, meaning the false teachers who are coming in and trying to get you to add works to the gospel, they are zealous to win you over. Yeah, they're passionate, but it's for no good or purpose. What they want is to alienate you from us so that you may have zeal for whom? For them. You hear what he's saying there? These false teachers may talk a good talk. They may look good. They may be passionate. But their ultimate goal is to win you, not to even their position, but it's to win you to themselves. Gospel-centered ministry is the exact opposite of this. But I know what he's talking about with these false teachers. It's so easy to be like this. Oftentimes when you're ministering to someone 
and you make an impact, it's exciting. And in a sense, you want them to be dependent on you as they grow in Christ and grow up in Christ. But if, but if they turn on you, if they have a bad opinion about you or say something bad about you, it's painful. We get that. But our ultimate goal is not to win people to us, Paul is saying. Our ultimate goal, the zeal that we have for people is to win people to Christ. It's so easy as a minister of the gospel to want people to be needy for you and dependent on you. You can easily get this kind of Messiah-like complex. I've seen different people wrestle with that too. We can become emotionally dependent on being needy as a minister of the gospel. And you and I both can do that. Where Paul says that's not our ultimate purpose. Our ultimate purpose is to have zeal for them so that in verse 19, they may be formed into the image of Christ. You know, if you think about that image of child labor in verse 19, Paul says he is again in the the pains of childbirth until Christ is formed in them. You know, if you're a parent or a mom who's had a child, as they're born, you know that a child is very dependent on you. And similarly, Paul, when he had planted the gospel and reached them with Christ for Christ, they were very dependent on him and, and needy for him. But his goal is like a mom. He wants to see them have a healthy delivery, a healthy childhood. He wants to see them grow and mature in Christ and eventually get out of the nest and get out of their parents' basement and get their own job. Can I hear amen, parents? <laughs> but spiritually speaking, that is what he wants for them. He doesn't want them dependent on him. Success for him would for them to be released from him and sent out on a mission for Christ and to know Christ and be known by Christ. He doesn't need them. And the same is true of us. If we're really gospel-centered in our ministry, the people we minister to, hopefully we're not making them dependent on us, but we're making them dependent on Christ. Hopefully we can be honest with them enough that even if it makes them mad and they leave us for a while, that's okay, because that's what Christ called us to do. So if you look at these four characteristics in summary, I couldn't help but think not just of Paul from our passage, but of Jesus. Look at the first one again, loving confrontation. Did Jesus ever lovingly confront someone? It may not always felt like love when he was turning the tables over in the temple. But he did it out of love because he wanted them to know God. Or characteristic number two, was Jesus flexible and adaptable with reaching us with the gospel? Yes. He moved from the farthest place possible, from heaven to earth. He even became a baby who had to have his diaper changed. That's how much he related to us and grew up and died on a cross in weakness and humiliation for our sins. Or characteristic number three, was Jesus willing to embrace hardship and trials from ministry? That's why he came, for the cross. And did Jesus have zeal and passion, but with purpose? You can't help but read his teaching, and I wish I could be there, and just hear, hear the passion in his voice and the concern for his people but it was all for a purpose so that they would know God and repent of their sins and be in a relationship with the Lord. So we're gonna celebrate that today by taking communion. Brad, you're welcome. Come forward, one of our deacons. And I believe this is the perfect response to what we heard today because if you think about those characteristics, how many of you find those challenging to be like that? I know I do. And if I just told you, just go do it. You know, Nike said it, just do it. It would be a burden. We can't do it on our own. We need the supernatural intervention of the Holy Spirit. 
And one of the ways that the Holy Spirit works is that it says in John 16 that he glorifies Jesus. He puts a spotlight on Jesus. So if we're going to be filled with the Spirit, we have to glorify and focus on Jesus. And that's exactly what we're going to do right now in communion. So just by way of reminder, communion is open to anyone who's a believer in Jesus Christ. And if you're not a believer or you're not sure, if you haven't embraced the gospel, uh, first of all, we're so glad you're here. But we ask that you not participate in this and not partake of this, but just watch and observe what's going on. And I would love to talk with you further after the service if you have any questions. I asked Brad, and I often have a deacon help me with communion, just to remind you that uh, we have six deacons who are shepherding this church alongside me and our staff. They uh, meet with me weekly, early, for prayer and accountability, and also to talk about opportunities and ideas and, and, and hard things in the life of our church. I'll often come with really challenging situations that I have no idea what to do, and I say, deacons, you tell me what to do, right? <laughs> and through conversation, through prayer, through wrestling it together, we often come to an answer over time. So I am so thankful for their ministry and what they do, because a lot of these guys work full-time, and on the side, they're deacons. <laughs> if you ever have an issue or something you need to talk to about, about something, you can talk to me or our staff, but also our deacons, our shepherds of this church. In fact, we have a brochure out at the Welcome Center where you can learn about who our deacons are and which one is connected to you. It's all kind of divided based on your last name. So I encourage you to check that out. So Brad, would you read Matthew 26, uh, verses 26 to 29 on screen? While they were eating, Jesus took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to his disciples, saying, Take and eat. This is my body. Then he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink from it, all of you. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink from this fruit of the vine from now on until that day when I drink it anew with you in my Father's kingdom. Amen. Well, I want to invite our ushers forward. They're going to start distributing the bread and the cup. And we ask that you hold on to it until we all partake together, okay? Just as Brad read, the bread reminds us of Jesus' body, which was broken and beaten and crucified for us in our place, that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, took on flesh and experienced tremendous suffering on our behalf. And then the cup reminds us of Jesus' blood, specifically the blood of the covenant, which enables our sins to be forgiven which enables us to have the Holy Spirit living inside of us and enables us to know God and glorify God and enjoy God every single day. Blood may seem like a weird thing to us today, but scripture makes clear that without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. And the blood of bulls and goats could not ultimately pay for sin. Only the pure lamb of God, Jesus Christ himself, could pay for sin with his blood and our sins could be forgiven and we get Christ's righteousness. That word covenant as well, we saw that in our text, reminds us that God starts a new agreement with us based on Jesus's blood, that because of what Jesus has done, God puts the Holy Spirit inside of us and writes his law on our hearts and enables us to follow him. Jesus accomplished all of this by his death and his resurrection. So while the ushers continue to distribute the bread and the cup, Brad, would you take a moment and just pray? thanking God for these things. Heavenly Father, we thank you this day that you, you're, you're the creator of the world, the creator of the universe, 
and yet you care about us. And you sent your son Jesus to be with us here on this earth and to, to walk a perfect life, a blameless life. John the Baptist was correct when he saw you coming and he said, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away our sins. Lord, you were the perfect Lamb, the ultimate sacrifice. Your blood was shed on that cross when you were nailed to it and your body was broken for us. We thank you for that gift of your sacrifice. And we just give you all the praise and the glory. In Jesus' name, amen. We encourage you to keep having a moment of silence and to keep reflecting on these things. And then in about a minute or two, we'll take communion together. Scripture says, while they were eating, Jesus took bread, and when he had given thanks, it says he broke it, like this, and gave it to his disciples, saying, take and eat, this is my body. Let's eat in remembrance of Jesus' body together. And then it says in scripture that he took a cup and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them saying, drink from this cup, all of you in remembrance of me. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. So let's drink in remembrance of Jesus's blood together. Father, I pray that what you have done for us through Christ, the gospel, Lord, I pray that that would energize us. I pray that it would be the center of our life because that is the only way we will have gospel-centered ministry. Lord, just as we are reminded to take in the bread and the cup, we are reminded to take in who you are every single day, to be thankful for your grace and what you've done. Lord, may we never tire of it. May we never forget this. Lord, may you empower us by your spirit to be focused on the gospel, we pray. In Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand with us for this last song?
But now that you know God, or rather are known by God, how is it that you're turning back to those weak and miserable forces? It's almost easy to miss, but he says, we know God, which is true. But even more importantly, God knows you. God knows us. God sees you. He loves you. Why would you go back to idolatry? Why would you add legalism when you know God and he knows you? In fact, that's the primary thing that identifies us as, us as believers. Our knowing of God kind of fluctuates, but his knowing of us never fluctuates. Amen? Amen. Thanks for coming. Go in his grace.